0: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content.
1: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron.
0: Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of the Federal News Network. I am Roger Waldron, and on today's show, we're going to just do our typical potpourri of federal uh, federal procurement issues and. Uh, just what's going across uh, uh, across the procurement
2: uh, landscape, Jason? Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Roger. You know it's always a pleasure when I get to interview you on your show.
0: Well, I, yes, and I really enjoy it. It's always fun.
2: <laughs> if, if, if people could only see your face right now, they would yeah. see the joy that is expressed yeah, right. across it. Yeah
0: how how quickly can I get it out of here? Right, <laughs> forty five minutes. We done? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, well, I think the you know the topic. To, Kick it off with, I guess, or the the subject area, I guess, or subject agency would be GSA, and um, you know, of, one of my favorite agencies, by uh, the way. I know it is. It absolutely. really absolutely well, It's it is my favorite agency. How about that? Well, you having, used to work there, <laughs> right? Having worked there twenty years, um, and GSA is in the midst of its uh, you know schedules modernization consolidation effort, and just on Friday we saw the issuance of a RFI with a consolidated set of terms and conditions for the schedules that they're working towards. And, you know, I know you've been following this a lot, Jason, and just, you know, your
2: observations, what you see is going on and and what you're hearing about it. Well, this RFI is interesting because, first of all, it's it's one of those steps that is necessary and important as they get down to consolidating these 24 schedules into one, and they still have that date of October 1st, 2019, which I have to say it, it seems to be coming really fast to get a lot of work done. Yes,
0: it's a, it's an aggressive date, um, and, and it is to get a, to to go through 24 different schedule solicitations to try to harmonize the terms and conditions to address the line item structure, and I know they want to incorporate NAICS codes into it as well. It is a lot of work that they've got to, got to do. And and actually, it's um, gratifying to see that they've already taken the first step to put out this RFI and are seeking feedback from, you know, industry partners and stakeholders on, you know, what, what the current, you know, set of consolidated terms and conditions look like.
2: And what's interesting is there, there it's a little bit of a short turnaround, about a month. To comment on it. And really what we're talking about here is terms and conditions is really what runs the schedules. What are you buying? How are you selling it? What's the interaction between the you know, customer and the government or the, the vendor, the government customer? And so I'm interested to, to see as we dig into this a little bit, Roger, what really is it asking for? And um, one of the things that that I've heard Emily Murphy talk about and some of her folks at the Federal Acquisition Service is, and, and they've talked about this RFI, is we realize we're not standardized. We realize that Schedule 70 is different than Schedule 84, which is different than another, you know, the MOBIS schedule or PEC, whatever's left of those schedules. Yeah, PSS now, the
0: professional services schedule, yeah.
2: And, and how can they get to a place where, you know, the 80-20 rule maybe, where it's 80%, we all can agree, and then the other 20% is where maybe these RFI could, could help with. When, when you hear from your you know, members of the Coalition for Government Procurement. What, what's their biggest concern about in terms and conditions? What what, what what kind of trends do you hear for the most? So
0: yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The terms and conditions, the contract, the four corners of your you know arrangement with the government are something as a contractor you really need to understand, um, and understand how to operate in in a manner that reduces your risk and opt- optimizes your opportunities for business. Um, so it's really going to be fundamental to try to understand those terms and conditions and what they come up with. Um, and, and I would say there's a couple areas. Your your point about 80-20 is a very good one in the sense that there will be a standard set of terms that, again, everybody can agree on. But to your point, there are different schedules, different industries have different, you know, terms and conditions that would apply to them, what would apply to a You know, security schedule like for products like 84 wouldn't necessarily apply to um, the uh, professional services schedule in terms of inspection terms and conditions, other standard commercial terms and conditions that may apply. And building a platform that addresses the 80% that are in common, but allows the flexibility to incorporate and clearly articulate when those unique terms that are particular to, to a particular industry apply, you know, GSA, that's where they're trying to get. Um, and I think it's going to be like this step is a big step because to get that industry feedback is vital as part of that effort. And in our case at the coalition, we're, you know, we'll take, a, because we have members across all industry sectors, we'll have a, the unique opportunity to be able to provide feedback across the platform across the terms and conditions as to what should or
2: shouldn't apply. And one of the things they do talk about in this RFI is they say that whether or not there needs to be required provisions, required is applicable to support a specific category, and then what shouldn't be included. And it's interesting, because they're, they're gonna hold some webinars, and I think that's really important, because they really are looking for user feedback outside of just this RFI. Uh, the, you know They're gonna look at it in June, July, and August. and. Again, when we look at that October one date, they've got to make some decisions fairly quickly. So, you know, August twenty second is the last webinar. So, if that's the last opportunity to kind of get feedback or understand where what, yes. what the GSA thinking is, that really only gives them about thirty days to to finish this up.
0: Yeah, I mean, p- I mean, part of this maybe you know is going to probably be already be baked. There's going to be standard terms and conditions that are in the GSAR that you know aren't just aren't going to go away, right? That so that's so that piece is done. It's these. Understanding, you know, you know, what the impact of certain terms on certain industries, how to divide that. I also think the the area where there's a couple areas, you know, that it's it, with the line item structure and ensuring, you know, one of the things we've talked to them a lot about is, you know, you you have duplicative schedules now with 24 that overlap, and you're doing a great thing by eliminating that overlap and that you know competing scopes that. Make it hard for people to to decide which schedule to be on or, you know, customers which schedule I should be looking at to buy certain products from. So you're addressing that. But at the same time, don't recreate that duplication at the contract line item level. And, oh, by the way, they also want to incorporate NAICS codes in terms of dividing up how the, you know, services or products are offered or presented to customers as well and how they work all that out. That is, I mean, I think that's... I wouldn't say it's a long pole in the tent, but that's an area where just below the terms and conditions, so to speak, at that line on a level, that is going to be a big deal because that also impacts how companies go to market and how they organize their offerings. And you and the goal really should be to allow the companies to go to market as closely as they can to the way they do in the commercial space. That will reduce costs, increase access to commercial solutions you know, and provide efficiency and increase competition, frankly.
2: Whenever I hear NAICS codes, though, however, I get a little concerned. They're one of the most confusing things in all my years of covering procurement. Why can't you just simplify? I understand what they are, and I understand, but for GSA to start moving towards NAICS codes as a way to to get rid of line items or even to look at SINs differently, that may just drive me nuts. It may be another soapbox I may have to get on in the future. Yeah,
0: well, it's, it is like a, a very confusing area, I know, and I'm, you know, I, I wanna go back, you know, in the previous administration there was an effort to modernize the NAICS codes and that t- took on a life of its own. Um, the, you know, the thing about the NAICS codes, when you think about what it's really doing, right, in a certain sense, it, it's dividing markets or it's because you're assigning NAICS codes that go to determining size status for companies you know that there's a lot at stake there because if you pick one pick one NAICS code, your code, company may be small, and another NAICS code, they're not small. So that choice can drive competition, and it can drive market access for small businesses as well.
2: And, and I think one of the other pieces to this entire schedules modernization that I'm interested to see what they do is they're saying we want to make it easier for customers, their agency customers as well, and how. So they can understand the terms and conditions, because I think one of the complaints I've heard over, over time, especially around the GSA schedule, is not just the fee, which we can go down that path too if you want, Roger, but really, <laughs> uh, it's really about the um, this idea of well, what am I buying? Who am I buying it from? And 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 it's, it's, it's the price is based on the quantity of one, and and I think a lot of that is part of those terms and conditions. Whereas if you do go you do your own contract or or use a an agency wide contract where you know a blanket purchase agreement or some kind of multiple work contract, you know your terms and conditions because you either wrote them or you were part of the writing of them, so you understand them better. So I think standardizing them and making them easier for for customer agencies is also a big deal that will come from the schedules modernization. Well, you know I'm gonna you know back in the '90s
0: and into the 2000s, one of the things we were trying to do for our customers when I was at GSA is, make sure we publicized all those terms and conditions so that the customer had access to them so they could see actually what, you know, was impacting their transaction. You know, the, the companies had them because they negotiated directly with GSA and had their paper copies, that's aging myself here, right? But they had those and they understand the terms and conditions and there was always a requirement to provide, you know, a scheduled price list with some of the key terms and conditions. But one of the things that our customers asked at the time was for GSA to publicize or create a database with all the terms and conditions, which GSA did, but it wasn't a very elegant solution. You know, one of the things that this consolidation will provide the opportunity to do is to better present the information you're talking about. It's a very good thing. You know, the, the other aspect of that, though, is You know, they could get through all these terms and conditions, set it up, issue the solicitation on October 1st. They've got to also think about, and I know they are because we've talked to them a lot, they're thinking, you know, across their enterprise, what are they going to have to do with their systems to adjust to this? What are they going to do with eBuy? You know, are they going to make it more transparent across the schedules? All,
2: All kinds of other questions yet to be addressed. But I think you bring up a really interesting point because let's be clear to the audience that just because they're gonna launch this on October 1st does not mean they're gonna shut off the other schedule. The other schedule will still be around for quite a while. I think this is a a two to four year effort where they're gonna slowly move vendors over to that consolidated one schedule versus just shutting, it's not a light switch. And I think people may get worried and I think agency customers may get worried if they just go, Oh, well, what am I going to buy? I don't understand how the buying. I mean, there's a ton. GSA understands the change management that's needed through this entire process. Right. They
0: have a sort of phased approach where I think initially, you know, once they issue a solicitation, they're only going to be taking new offers on the new solicitation terms, but the other schedules will continue to exist for a time being. They actually talk about having 25 because they're adding the new one, right, for a period of time and then to consolidate. And then one of the best things I've heard GSA say. Is this idea that they're going to work with the companies? Lots of companies have multiple contracts because they're in different, you know, they cross different industries. That this goes to the whole scope and the artificial scope issues on the schedules um, that divide things artificially, not consistent with the commercial market. So those they have consistently said we're going to work with the companies who have those multiple contracts, you know, to consolidate it to one. But the acknowledging, you know, their business imperatives and you know they're in unique circumstances. And so, and the working with those companies to get it done in a, you know, in an effective manner, but it's not like,
2: you know, overnight. It's a collaborative effort. So, that's a good thing as well. The other piece of this is, and I think we should look at this just briefly, though, is that if they consolidate the schedules, they've added OLMs or other direct costs in there as a way to 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 make it easier to buy a solution, if you will, whatever that means do we need schedules anymore? Can you just, I mean, or do we need GWACs anymore? Do we need multiple work contracts? I know everyone loves this idea of we gotta have the more the merrier in some ways, but if you are improving the schedules to be one, to be, to offer other direct costs, and eventually if they can get Congress, and and correct me if I'm wrong, to approve their ability to do other than time and materials and labor hour contracts under, if they can do firm fixed price, and they can do uh, cost plus type contracts under the schedules, could could you just have the schedules? Um, what just as the solution? Uh, no, I mean no. that's
0: that's one vision, um, <laughs> not a good I, one I can tell. <laughs> um, well, I think there's. I mean, I you know I've um, you know commercial item contracting and cost reimbursement contracting. Should they be? You know, this is it's one thing. Let's when you're talking about the Alliant contract or o- Oasis or others where you where they specifically say hey you could do a commercial item order you could do firm fixed price you can do cost reimbursement but it's primarily, but it's not primarily fundamentally a commercial item contract the schedules are fundamentally commercial item contracts and how are you going to incorporate cost reimbursement contracting into that mix with something that's a fundamental commercial contract you know is it i would if it's even possible i would think it would have to be a separate schedule or some sort of division between that commercial, fundamentally commercial contract vehicle versus those other type, just because of all the differences and the cost accounting standards and all those things that would apply, potentially apply. Um, you know, and then you know, I think there's some value to a portfolio as well that is focused on specific you know, aspects of you know, government requirements, right? Some of these contracts are built to respond to government requirements in a particular way. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced that's the way to go, um, and I think industry as a whole is not necessarily convinced, uh, at least the companies we talk to, that that's the way to go. Um, I can see we're up on the break. Um, my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of The Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf, again, on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of the Federal News Network. And uh, Jason, you know, we've been talking schedules consolidation and lots of things about the contracts themselves and the line items. Um, but there's also something that GSA is going to be dealing with, uh, customer agencies are going to be dealing with and contractors and that's where well, they have existing, you know, orders in place or BPAs in place. And I know BPAs are one yeah, of your don't, favorite. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, your eyes are starting to get, you know, I can see the veins pop in your, in your neck there when I mention the word or the term BPAs. That only happens uh, when you mention the word, uh, fed biz Off. so uh, okay, BPAs are yeah. not quite there yet. Okay. Well, you're getting close though. Yeah. I can see it. Um, but uh, you, know, the, you know how they're going to handle that transition for for pre-existing blanket purchase agreements or task orders. I know there's been a lot of thought on that. Um, you know, w-
2: what's your view on it? I've seen a huge increase in the number of BPAs on top of the schedule, which is why I get so worked up about it. But that's a, let's put that off to the side for a second.
0: Almost half the dollar volume of orders under the schedules now are. Bpas in some years it was over half. This year I think this past fiscal year it's like forty six, forty eight percent. But the year before it was over fifty percent.
2: That, that's incredible. I, that's numbers I had not heard before, and it's just it's again it goes back to my point of it seems redundant. Well, it. well but, but, you know,
0: if people are doing it, they must provide some value. If you believe in
2: the market, if you believe in the market, okay. Uh, oh, what do we say? A little, <laughs> a little insight there, Jason. I, I, I'm just saying that uh, if if you put out donuts, everyone will eat the donut. But if you put out wasn't wasn't
0: a National Donut Day it, last week? It right. was National Donut Day.
2: But if you put out if it's National Broccoli Day, most people won't eat broccoli. Oh, so I if, love broccoli. Yeah, but but the only ones uh, drenched in butter, Roger. But if you or hollandaise sauce or something, <laughs> I know. But but if you if you tell people, you know, okay, you know, do what you want, have all the donuts you want, they're going to get fat on those donuts. Hence, why the money's being spent. But if you're saying to them, no, you can have donuts when it's appropriate, and you can have broccoli when it's appropriate, people will eat less broccoli and less donuts because they'll realize that there are certain things that are good for them. But let's go back to the issue of schedule consolidation and BPAs. one what, what of the things that stands out to me with this increase around the schedules and use of BPAs is if we're just going down to one schedule then isn't the move to the consolidation really not going to impact the BPAs because they'll just float on top of the schedule meaning if you had a uh let's say identity management services BPA that that's out there that's over uh schedule 70 yes why why wouldn't that just continue to be there it should it's
0: just a, it's just doing your homework if you're a contractor and if you're GSA like you know then you get into. I mean, I, we don't. I mean, you really get. You, you want to uh, get in the weeds? I, well, no, but just like contract numbers, making sure you know that yeah, you know, the 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 contract under which it was um, awarded, you know, arguably still exists in the context. I mean, it's not. I'm just saying it's something that people are going to be tracking, looking at, and you want to make sure if you're a company as you transition to a single award. That you're managing your BPAs and you're understanding how that consolidation to a single contract may or may not affect your BPAs and just being safe on that because you don't want to wake up and have some contracting officer some way say, oh, sorry, you know, your contract just went away. Your BPA therefore doesn't exist anymore. That shouldn't happen. And I'm not saying it will happen. But that's one of the areas where companies need to be very sensitive and and, and pay attention to.
2: And I imagine GSA will have some sort of guidance yes, to, to other agencies yes. or some kind of advice. They're already
0: working on that. I mean, uh, yeah, but I, yeah, that's that's true. It's just but just be safe, better safe than sorry. Right? right? So, so, revenue is important thing, right? <laughs> and and <laughs> as is performing for the government.
2: And, and as we've seen with the increase of. Uh, Bpas that, that becomes even more important as more and more agencies are using them. Uh, one of the other pieces around this, I think that we also should touch upon, is when it comes to schedules consolidation. And, and it's related is the e marketplace initiative that GSA is pushing through. It's it's not it, it's a consolidation, if you will, in and of itself, though not schedules related. But it will also impact the schedules because a lot of that stuff that's bought off the schedules, the low dollar amount, the simplified acquisition, or the micro purchase threshold, are now the hope is from GSA that they're going to push this to this new e-marketplace. And we know they put the report. They sent the report to Congress. Uh, we've seen the National Defense Authorization Bill for 2020, at least the initial markup and initial thoughts. I don't remember seeing, and my colleague Scott Massioni has covered this much more closely than I have, uh, any provisions in there regarding Section 846, uh, the Amazon Amendment, whatever you want to call it these days. Uh, I'll be interested to see what comes up, whether it's a chairman's mark, uh, which I think comes out on Monday, um, or what else? Uh, what uh, what other uh, topics kind of rise? Yeah, there's
0: nothing there right now. Um, the issue will be if something comes up in the markup. But you know, it's interesting. You know, just on the on the e marketplace when GSA is consolidating schedules in the e marketplace e commerce world, they're actually dividing the market. And when you stop at the irony of it is that you know while they're consolidating the contracts in the in the e commerce world, they've decided to do a proof of concept, just focusing on the e marketplace model. Uh, ha- GSA having identified three different models, the e-marketplace, the e-procurement, and the e-commerce p- platforms, um, you know, I think they you know, w- w- with the way they're going, they should have followed the schedules model and included the other two models as part of any kind of proof of concept, especially from the context that ultimately the proof of concept is, supposed to, is intended to inform rulemaking policy around how to use these things and if you're only testing essentially one of the three types, I don't know how you can come up with guidance that, you know, is fulsome and complete um, and takes into account the dynamics of the entire marketplace versus, you know, the entire e-commerce market versus
2: the marketplaces. And I think uh, just to be uh fully recognize this this discussion this came up at the coalition for government procurement spring conference which uh, i can say after being uh, at your spring conference and your fall conference for the last 15 or so years 20 years maybe uh, it was a pretty good one yeah oh thank you yeah, yeah you thanks nice I job you had good speakers <laughs> a lot of quality content Thank you. Well,
0: I think we always do, but if uh, if this is one of your highlights, I appreciate well, uh,
2: that. How about I? I uh, this was the most more memorable. Okay, you know, good. Sometimes you get speakers who maybe don't say enough or don't make any news. But I think every one of your panels had yeah. some. And Emily did a great job with uh, her uh, presentation. Of course, she did. Yes, I even got to ask her a question. She harassed me. That's right. <laughs> but but I think that one of the things that came up at your your your, your spring conference was this this question of of how are you going to test? How is GSA going to test the other? Uh, ideas around e-marketplace, e marketplace, e commerce, e procurement, and they didn't quite have an answer for that. And I think that's probably the next answer that they really should provide. Because Emily Murphy has said before Congress, and I think she has said publicly many times, that uh, um, we 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 are going to have multiple, we are going to do more than one, we are going to look at this and 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 try to see what works best. Uh, I think what would alleviate a lot of concern, especially your concern and your member's concern, would be if. GSA was a little more forthcoming with their plan. Hey, we're going to test you know, e marketplace from you know, uh, October to February, and then we're going to test from February to June, and then you know, give us a yes. plan. And, and I think that's what's missing. So I'll be interested if one that would come out later this summer or if Congress will, based on that report that they did send to Congress about a month and a half ago, whether they are going to say to them, um, hey, we need more information.
0: Right. Well, I think those are, those are good questions. The report did leave lots of questions. Um, you know, from from our perspective, the you know, the choice of the marketplace, which is at the platform level, the least competitive of the three types of uh, platforms, were identified, raises concerns about potential distortion of the market, um, and also just you know where are. The, um, you know, GSA's customers on this, you know, you know, my sense is the Department of Defense is not an enthusiastic, enthusiastic supporter of uh, increasing the micro-purchase threshold to 25000 which is a proposal GSA identified, um, nor are they really, you know, that enthused with the whole concept, uh, given where they're going with their FedMall platform and, you know, the, their marketplace that they're creating, um, and then the issues around compliance. Um, whether it's Trade Agreements at compliance, cyber issues, impact on small business when you raise it from 10 to 25. You know, we've estimated there's a good you know, $7 billion worth of over five years of impact on small businesses. All those things need to be addressed. There's still so many questions before they even get to the point of increasing the micro-purchase threshold. And you make a great point. What are they going to do? How are they going to test the other ones? It should be a short set of tests. With a limit of the different models um, across the board and with a limited su- subset of in- of agencies and you know it's going to be civilian agencies because the department's not not interested
2: the other piece is, is you bring this up is the supply chain piece so if you increase the micro purchase threshold to 25,000 that opens up a big door for for supply chain challenges I think we may talk about that later in the show and then it also opens the door for okay, well, what can you buy for $25,000? And, you know, you can buy a car. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You can buy, you know, uh, uh, 150, 200 computers potentially, you know. The computers are coming down in price. You can buy a bunch of Google Chromebooks. uh, I mean, and then put them on your network, and boom, you have a problem. So I think, you know, until they address those types of issues, and they can't say the market will address it because the market hasn't addressed it in the consumer world. One of the things that we all suffer from is that when you go to, you know, pick your – Pick your commercial company yes. to buy a computer. You have no guarantees that that computer is not free of a virus, a backdoor, malware, or if you go to a third-party site to download an application or to buy some software. The softwares have bugs all the time, and we we see Microsoft has Patch Tuesday. So, how do you deal with that issue? And I think that's those are a lot of the questions that the GSA still needs the answer. At the same time. Have you seen any congressional appetite to raise the micro purchase threshold to twenty five thousand? They rejected it last year.
0: No, I haven't we haven't seen that yet. Um uh, you know, and I don't think like I said, there's no appetite at the Department of Defense. And the irony is that the original section eight forty-six was supposed to be intended for the Department of Defense. And they you know, seem to be the least enthusiastic of any of the agencies with regard to, you know, this current approach.
2: Now you guys have looked at the Air Force pilot that they're doing with Amazon. Do you get a sense of whether the with the micro purchase threshold as is? How are they dealing with some of these other issues? Have you talked to Air Force about this much or looked into it?
0: Um, you know, we're we're looking at that particular pilot. I think you know that pilot raises the same que- the, you know there's a funiform set of questions. You know, how are they addressing cyber issues and supply chain risk issues? You know what you know this the interesting thing about creating a contracting program or even if it's a pilot is I'm not familiar and I don't remember where the government has created a formal contracting program where they're waiving, for example, the Trade Agreements Act. Because you can look at it as there's going to be contracts at the platform level. But the the loophole from a streamlining perspective is the transactions are all micro-purchase below the micro-purchase, whatever that number is. And the Trade Agreements Act doesn't apply. So – like so, you can buy products from countries who are ineligible under the Trade Agreements Act. In the leading country of that is China. So that goes directly back to the supply chain issues that haven't been answered, and it raises questions. So and and so if you're doing micro purchase threshold and you've created this formal channel, well, that's one of the big questions that government contractors who have invested in Trade Agreements Act compliance because and the policy fundamental policy behind that is not just you know, we mentioned cyber because that's a big deal, but also it's the goal of ensuring fair treatment of American products and services by foreign governments. That's the whole purpose from our perspective. If you go look at the U.S. trade reps page, you know, what the policy goals are, it's to promote, in a certain sense, American products and goods and, you know, to create a formal channel where you're not, you know, addressing that, at least making a fundamental upfront policy decision that, Yes, we're going to apply it, and this is because of the sound policy goals. Or explaining why you're not, I think that's incumbent on the whole concept.
2: But let me play devil's advocate for a second. then we're going to have to do a break. I think. Sure. GSA is not creating a new program. You keep me
0: in line on those breaks.
2: <laughs> GSA is not creating a new program. They're just they're just expanding where you can use the simplified acquisition threshold or the micro purchases threshold, I should say, through this e marketplace. You can already do it now. You can. Put down your credit card. I, I, so I they're think not that's creating a, a new program. Uh,
0: I, I don't buy the argument. This is why. From a policy perspective, the m- use of the micro-purchase threshold and use of a credit card is like the least favorite thing you should be doing in, in, in a, from a policy perspective. You sh- you, you, the, uh, in, in, it's counter to the whole category management, best-in-class approach. There's contracts for all this stuff that are out there that have good pricing. And in fact, there's two studies that show the GSA schedule pricing – is better than on a, e, on a commercial mark, e-marketplace uh, site in terms of pricing. There are pre-existing contracts. The micro-purchase threshold and the, you know, and it actually applies to the GSA schedule. So you can go directly to one scheduled contractor in a streamlined manner, just like you could open market. But at, on the schedules, you're getting a compliant product, Trade Agreement Act, that sort of thing, or it's been vetted. Um, the my, use of the purchase card in the market is for like one-off buys where it, you can't, you, you're a local and you're gonna to go to the local Home Depot or buy something, it wasn't intended to be a purchasing program. And here you're, in a certain sense, turning, turning the procurement system on its ear to make the micro-purchase threshold the purchasing program. It doesn't make a lot of sense from a government policy perspective. Um, and I know Jason's yelling at me now, he's giving me the look, we're up at the break. Uh, uh, my guest today is Jason Miller, he's the executive editor Of the Federal News Network, I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of the Federal News Network, and we're doing one of our potpourri of procurement. They like that, potpourri of procurement um, discussions. And I need another P there to make it alert— illiterate to live. I can't even say the word. So, um, but anyway, um, so one of the things that yeah, I know, uh, you've been following and there's lots of interest around bid protests generally, but also specifically some interesting cases on right now. And, you know, in particular, I think Jedi is one you're following. What's the latest reporting on Jedi?
2: Well, this is the DoD cloud program, it could be worth as much as $10 billion over 10 years. And this is a dogfight, Roger. I mean, this reminds me, and again, every time I read it, the latest filings from Oracle, I go back to, if you remember, uh, Darlene Drunyan from the Air Force. Oh, yes,
0: I remember. I was in the government at that time. Yep, and, absolutely. And,
2: and remember, she went to jail. Yes, she did. Between <laughs> the, over, the, over the tanker and Boeing and, and and the job offers. And and every time I read another Oracle filing, and I, I fully admit that this is an Oracle filing, so we have not seen the Amazon Web Services or the, the government's filings in response yet, but it just goes, uh-oh, it just really raises the level of, is this is this how concerning is this? And and I actually just wrote a story last week where we talk, or where the latest Oracle filings highlight new details that continue to come out. And and let me just go over a couple of those new details. Uh, the first one that really stands out to me is the focus, the continued focus on Deep Ubai, who was the Defense Digital Service uh, lead. And, 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 you know, there's some disagreement between Oracle and, and DOD over how big of a role, role he played, played mm-hmm. in the Jedi procurement. But what we saw in the latest Oracle filings with the court of federal claims is the slack messages that show that Ubai, again was saying, hey, I'm in charge. I'm leading this effort. I'm making the decisions. I'm getting people on board. I'm meeting with vendors. He met with AWS. He met with Microsoft. He met with Nutanix. He met with VMware. And so you see the slack messages of him showing that he's not just a bystander. The other thing that came out uh, during these filings, and this is as fascinating, but a lot of it's redacted, is Amazon Web Services has, had offered Ubi a, a signing bonus, a salary, a second signing bonus, and stock options all while he was a DoD employee. And why this is important. Now, you can this can happen if you're a regular DoD employee. But what came out again is Oracle is showing, at least they're alleging, that AWS made these offers before Ubi recused himself or, or told the DOD that he was recusing himself from the Jedi procurement. And then on top of all of this, Ubi has said, and so he didn't recuse himself. He did is not. The point not right. before he got these job offers while mm-hmm. he was in conversations. And then on top of all this, the reason why Ubi said to. DoD, he was recusing himself, is because Amazon Web Services or Amazon was interested in buying a startup he had founded called Table Hero. Well, Amazon released documents that said they had no, no interest in Table Hero since 2016. So Ubi, who says, and you're a lawyer, so you understand this much more than I do, Ubi, who says, I recused myself in October of 2017 because they're going to buy Table Hero, for some reason, he was a year off and Amazon was not buying Table Hero I, it's it's uh, you know maybe it's confusing maybe it's a lie maybe it's just bad timing I, I don't really know we don't know well, I guess we'll see it in oral arguments but all these things just continue to paint a picture of conflict of interest of poor choices and and you wonder why DoD is so dug in their heels on this procurement
0: yeah um, that's fascinating stuff Jason um, yeah I, I, it 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 does kind of, it is interesting, I don't know if you have insights as to why they, you know, appear to have dug their heels in on it, or, um, and it's fascinating just the level of information that's being, you know, that's coming out.
2: I talked to one procurement attorney, and and we step away from JEDI for a second, you can put your old hat on when you worked as a procurement attorney back back in the good old days. Like for the government or for the industry? For industry. Okay. One procurement attorney told me, and I thought this was fascinating, that, he hadn't thought of to use slack to ask for slack messages before, and by reading the, the, these uh, Oracle documents, he says to me, "I think I'm going to start asking for slack." Like, yeah, that, that's yeah, that's the when you were describing, and I'm
0: thinking, wow, just another, you know, discovery point, another area information that people have to be con- should be concerned about, frankly, and you know, um, it's just it's kind of fascinating stuff. Is when
2: where where are we in the case, Jason? So, what Oracle filed in late May, early June was a mo- was a second motion for summary judgment. They're going to amend the record. Then what happens next is a series of of responses. We I guess the government's responses due, and Amazon Web Services as the intervener, their responses due, and then from there, Oracle's response to the government and, and Amazon's responses due, and then we have a hearing. Uh, oral arguments are scheduled for. Uh, July 10th in the court of federal claims in, in, in DC and the judge from what I'm told, uh, will make likely make a decision. He has a reputation of making a decision almost that day. He may not write his decision out, but he may bring both parties together and say, listen, it's clear that, you know, the plaintiff or, or, or the defendant is is going to win this and you can either start talking about settlement or are you going to wait my judgment? Uh, I'll be interested to see if that actually happens, but, um, a couple of the attorneys i've talked to are reading these documents and going listen th- there there's blood in the water for oracle it, it's it's it, dod's on the run this does not look good and and again even if you know the best that dod can do is say that ubi was braggadocious he was just a, a you know a, he was just trying to get his name out there to talk himself up but if the other Details are true about the job offers. And, and it's not just Ubi. There's two other people that potentially have conflicts of interest as well. And, in fact, the judge just on uh, uh, late last week asked DOD for a response to two basic questions. Uh, Tony Martino, who's the deputy chief of staff for the secretary, who has been embroiled in this entire yes. discussion, uh, but has not played as big a role as Ubi and, and, and this un- other redacted person who, who I found out to be Victor Gavin, uh, who is a former Navy acquisition executive who now works at Amazon. Um, but the judge wanted more information about DiMartino and his role in Jedi, and when did he leave the DoD? So I think by the judge asking those questions, again, I'm not a lawyer, and you are, but it seems to tell me something that the judge is, uh, has some concerns or some interest in the role that Mr. DiMartino played.
0: Yeah, or just is trying to sort it out one way or the other from a, I mean, from a factual perspective. That the record's unclear, maybe? Uh, right, yeah, absolutely. So um, – and I know there's interest on the Hill continuing on this. Have you been following that at all?
2: The defense authorization bill for 2020, again, has language in it that will restrict duties, kind of movement towards JEDI. Uh, the, the, the language really is, again, pushing multi-cloud. They want reports. They want information. Uh, they have not come far out to say you cannot do this. But they are definitely applying pressure, and Oracle is applying pressure. They had written something like eight letters to the House and Senate Propes Committee and the, and the Hask and SAS Committee I think, uh, asking for more oversight over this. And, and I think that they're starting to kind of – it seems to me like they're gaining traction just based on what's in the NDA for 2020.
0: All right. So, well, you know, Jason, we're we're up on the break. So, you know, we'll come back and talk uh, some additional procurement potpourri. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Jason Miller, the executive editor of the federal news network i'm roger waldron and in this segment you know potpourri we're really you know it's an important issue um it goes to you know your place in the market in terms of competitive um uh, opportunities you know and how the government views you and that's the whole cpars uh process and i know you've been following it and you have some yeah, you know, I guess reporting information on it. Can you share with us, Jason? Because it is it makes a difference. Past performance is always an evaluation factor. The CPARS process has always been a bit challenging. Um, what are you What are you learning or seeing,
2: Roger? There's a recognition, I think, across industry, and there's a really grown recognition within the government that past performance information under the CPARS program or system is is important, but it's not necessarily as valuable as it could be. And I think that there's an effort getting really kind of some momentum now from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, uh, Homeland Security Department's part of this, to really figure out how can we relook at past performance to make it more valuable. One of the biggest challenges, and this is brought to my attention from a group called GovCon RX, and they looked at some data of CPARS and found that the the the, the they got GovCon RX
0: they got the prescription for government contracting. They do is have that the their prescription. Have a, is that their tagline? It, I don't know it should do be. I, if not, yeah. you just wrote it for yeah, them. Yeah.
2: So what this organization did, and they they do help government uh, vendors get into government contracting and find success there, and it's made up of, of a lot of former[s] like Jim Williams from from yeah. GSA, like um, Michael Smith from DHS and one of the things that those that they looked at when they looked at the cpar's data is it's basically everybody's fine right they, uh, yep there's you're no plus right 1 or that. minus 1 but right. we're all fine
0: so it doesn't dis- distinguish or discriminate between companies
2: so the value is 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 less and less and if more and more uh, if you will contracting officers are putting their information in to say yeah yeah Roger Waldron and company is fine even if you're not so fine it's too much trouble to put, may, say that Roger was good on these two things but bad on these three things because then you will bring your lawyer in and say, no, 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 we want to uh, attest that and then you have to go back and forth and it's easier for the contracting officer because they don't have enough time and they have so much papers on their desk to get through. It's just easier to tell Roger he's fine. And I think what OFPP and DHS and others in the government are starting to look at is, well, how can we make this a little bit easier? How can we standardize and simplify Uh, this process? Could we use, and and here it comes, I know you're waiting for it, a Yelp-like system somewhere where there's some basic ratings or somewhere where you could give some comments, but there's not this consistent always back and forth and you can never have time to do it. Is there a way to maybe like, like if you think about Yelp and and Roger Waldron goes to a restaurant you don't like the restaurant, you put your comment, the, restaurant manager could write a comment on top of yours, Roger, I'm sorry you had a bad day. Uh, we are striving to fix this. We've brought this issue up to our kitchen and we're getting better. So maybe that could be something like this where the government puts their opinion, the vendor puts their opinion, and then, and then, it, then you as the user could then read it and decide. But I think this is fascinating because so much about, about past performance is so important to every contract. And, and, and this leads us down to the other thing that they're starting to look at is, Again, we'll go back to your made-up company, Roger Waldron & Associates. If you have a ton of private sector experience but not a lot of government experience, how can you use that private sector past performance to in, to get a contract in government? Uh, somebody told me a story just recently as I was doing research for this uh, um, story about somebody had you know six, seven, eight years of experience in the private sector and that counted for a plus one on their evaluation factor. But because they had limited government experience, uh, that didn't count for uh, much on the evaluation factor. But somebody else who had no private sector experience but had government experience got a plus 10. And and they said that just shouldn't be, that's it's unequal, it's unfair, and maybe we need to find a way that everybody's a plus one is a plus one for all of us. Well, I think, you know, that on that issue, that
0: goes to, it's an interesting, Dynamic and, and I've seen it before and then perhaps that goes to a little bit too is if you're if the government's trying to attract You know traditionally commercial firms, right or even like use let's use the buzzword of the day the non-traditionals, right? And you're gonna look at past performance in some manner or form trying to figure out how to as- better assess the commercial uh, past experience because that's what they have Versus the government experience, and try to you know figure. I mean, there there does seem to be a disconnect. If someone's been in business for ten years and done a great job in the commercial sector, delivering you know IT services and and support, and does the same thing in the federal government, um, and you and and that firm, by virtue of doing it for the federal government, I could see possibly get you know the work is more relevant, so you might get a little better score. Perhaps or a little better rating in terms of the you know evaluation criteria, but it, but a delta like you described it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and especially in the context where the government is trying to continually attract traditional commercial firms to you know to enhance the competition. So you know that's one thing, and I have to absolutely agree with you The the irony of the whole past performance you know era that we've had, I think it goes back to the late 90s or you know, in the Clinton administration where it said, yeah, we've got to start assessing that. It's become, it's become a neutralized factor in the sense that there's, it doesn't discriminate between offer wars when you're looking at the evaluation. I think a lot of it goes to the issue of um, you know, folks not wanting to you know, have to deal with the issues of giving someone a bad, I mean, arguably that's part of it, um, and the process. But I'm also not sure what the solution is, and I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with the Yelp approach. I don't know what the answer is.
2: I mean, it's worth looking at, but well, again, I'm not sure Yelp is the best example. Use. It's one we all can picture, yeah. But they're yeah. going to do something to where you can put your, I can put mine, and then it can live there. We don't have to go back and forth uh, because I think that currently it's too much. Everyone's everyone's fine. Everyone's a B, right? And, and that's probably not true. There are probably plenty of A's and there are plenty of C's and D's right yeah that, that, that's true and i
0: mean it's a it's a struggle and and ultimately what i what i used to see both in government and in industry is that part of any kind of source selection evaluation you really couldn't it typically didn't distinguish between um offer wars it was all got down to the price proposal or technical approach and that sort of thing and that you know and there were risk assessments there are risk assessments in those areas as well that can potentially make a, a, a distinguish things. But it's interesting to see DHS you know, and, the, and those folks trying to tackle that. It's a tough nut to crack. If they can figure it out, more power to them. So, um, and you know what, Jason? We're at the end of the show. It's,
2: it goes by so quickly. It's a, and
0: it's always a pleasure. It's always a joy. So I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of The Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on The Federal News Network.
1: You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.